Hello and welcome to the Pactum. On today's episode, we will be discussing the ever so vital book of Galatians. And we have a guest to help us today on our episode, but also stay tuned until the end where we will tell you where you can get a great discount on the commentary we're going to be discussing on today's episode. But before we introduce our guest, thank you for all the reviews and ratings that you've been giving to the Pactum. We appreciate it very much. We love to see your comments. So we'd encourage you to give us a thumbs up or a five star or drop us a review wherever you can. Here's a thoughtful review we got from Pilot Max 737 It says, I'm thankful for the Pactum and have enjoyed going back to the beginning and listening to each episode. Having been recently introduced to covenant theology, it has been extremely helpful to start with the episode on biblicism and learn about topics that were new to me, such as law, gospel distinction, ordinary means, historical confessions, redemptive historical hermeneutics, legalism versus antinomianism, and many other important distinctions in covenant theology. I also appreciate how the show notes include links to resources for further reading. I highly recommend the Pactum. Mike, check Man, out Pilot Max 737. That is a great That's one of the greatest feedback. That's one of the greatest recommendations I perhaps have ever heard in my young 54-year-old life. <laughs> Most Woo! definitely. Nice. Thank you. We appreciate it. Yes. Joining us today to discuss the great biblical letter called Galatians is the author of a Galatians commentary that is, well, let's just say Pactum approved. <laughs> the commentary is the newly released second edition of Galatians in the Lectio Continua Expository Commentary series. This means our guest today is J.V. Fesco. Hi, John, and welcome to the Pactum. Pat, it's good to be with you and Mike today. Uh, uh, it's always a joy and a privilege. Uh, glad, glad, glad to be here with you. Super. Well, you're no you're no stranger to the Pactum. You've been on before, but for those listeners who perhaps have not uh, gotten to know you, I'll offer something a little bit more formal before we get into the questions. J.V. Fesco is the Harriet Barber Professor of Systematic and Historical Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary, Jackson, Mississippi an ordained minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and the author of some very helpful books, mm -hmm. two of my favorites being Adam and the Covenant of Works and Justification, Understanding the Classic Reformed Doctrine. Mm -hmm. We've got some questions for you today, JV, about Galatians and your commentary. But before we get into Galatians and the commentary, let's talk about commentaries in general. Yesterday, I got on Amazon. I did a search Galatians commentary. Uh-oh, <laughs> more than at least 639, but who's counting? 639 <laughs> results help Christians maneuver. How do, we, how do we make choices that are good, helpful, not a waste of money, time? How, how yeah. do we choose commentaries? Yeah, choosing commentaries can be a challenging thing. Um, you know, my own my own kind of method for for finding a way through on this one is um, I, I like to kind of start with the greats, and I think that if you're talking Galatians commentaries, Martin Luther's is probably right there at the top. Uh -huh. uh, you know, I, I it's always a you know sometimes personal subjectivity is going to feature into you know who's the greatest, who's the best, who's got the who's written the best commentary. But uh, Luther's is certainly, both from a theological and a historical standpoint, one of the best. And I, I, I don't think you can really go wrong. I think it's Luther at his best. But <clears throat> beyond that, 
And, uh, you know, you have uh, other contributions from the 16th century, such as John Calvin's commentary Mm -hmm. on Galatians. That's uh, that's equally instructive. You've got some more recent ones. Uh, so say, for example, I think Moises Silva is, is a good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if I'm not mistaken, I believe Doug Moo has also, uh, written a commentary uh, on Galatians. So there's some, you know, some contemporary contributors that have, uh, done some admirable work. And, uh, but I would, I would really rank Luther up there okay. as being perhaps my favorite on Galatians. It's, it's so insightful and, and, uh, Luther's a powerful writer. Uh, he captures the imagination and, uh, even more importantly, so he really, um, he really, uh, sees the gospel clearly there in Galatians and preserves it in his own commentary. Super. So Pactum listeners, don't just pick the one that has the prettiest <clears throat> cover. Uh, <laughs> is maybe a lesson there. So your commentary, John, on Galatians is, uh, I would say, has serious exegesis. You're paying attention to the words and uh, lexical things and syntax and grammar, uh, but you don't leave it there. You also are deliberate when it comes to systematic theology. Uh, mm-hmm. which isn't always the case. Can you talk to us about why why both are actually important in a commentary? Yeah, you know, we live <clears throat> in an age of what we can describe as hyper-specialization so that, mm. you know, the New Testament guy doesn't know much about the Old Testament and vice versa, or the theologian supposedly doesn't know much about the New Testament or the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you look at these older commentaries like Luther's that we were discussing just a moment ago, uh, that was back before the disciplines became splintered. And you have some, I think, well-trained and well-intentioned, uh, say, New Testament scholars that say, well, first I'm going to do my exegesis, and then I'm going to do my theology. And I want to say that that's impossible. Uh, we always bring our theology to the process of exegesis. There's no way to set it aside. So Rather than say, I'm setting aside when we're actually smuggling it in the back door, uh-huh. uh, let's just put it out there up front so that we can wrestle with it. Because, you know, the way I'd, I'd say it is that all exegesis, uh, that is the interpretation of the scriptures, is theological. Mm-hmm. And at its best, all theology is supposed to be uh, exegetical. Mm-hmm. You know, the mm-hmm. two the two go hand in hand. Uh, and so uh, I think from from that vantage point, you want to pay attention to the doctrines that that Paul is uh, unpacking there, mm-hmm. and then uh, hopefully carefully explain them in context so that the doctrine is 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 grounded in the text itself. Mm-hmm. I almost consider it, you know a bit of a red flag when someone almost claims to say, "Well, I don't have any theology here. I, I'm just dealing with the text of Scripture," which mm-hmm. goes to your point. Uh, we all have theology. It's good or it's bad. It's yeah. Uh, of some stripe. Hopefully we're willing to to allow our theology to be shaped by scripture, the ultimate mm-hmm. authority, but good to be humble and just acknowledge that you have some theology. And I really yeah. appreciate, uh, I really appreciate your Galatians commentary uh, because uh, you, you don't, you don't uh, mince words. You just put the cards out there. You talk about law and gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about these things clearly and it's, it's helpful. Um, so your oh, theological, yeah, your theological alliances are, we, we know where you're coming from yeah. um, and that's helpful. Yeah. And our listeners, we, we talk a lot about law and gospel. We talk a lot about, uh, the importance of both, but the importance of not having gospel, which ruins, mm-hmm. ruins both of them. And yeah. so our, I think our listeners will really benefit from this particular commentary where, um, you, you're making it clear up front, uh, and it's straightforward. So thank you for doing that. 
Hey, uh, praise God and happy to do so. I, I, I love writing and if I can help people out, well then that's a double bonus. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, so many times we get asked, especially as pastors, people say, I want to study Galatians. Uh, what do you recommend? And uh, you know, it depends on the person. Well, uh, there are exegetical commentaries. There are ones that are good for languages. And, and yet you can't trust them because of their theology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's refreshing to have a, something, something helpful and straightforward. And I could just say, why don't you pick up J.V. Fesco's commentary? Uh, he won't do any gospel on you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's that's encouraging to hear. <laughs> good, yeah, John. Who do you, who do you think would benefit most from your commentary? Um, you know, I'd I'd hope anyone in the church, uh, whether they're um, a layman or someone that's you know more studied in theology, um, you know, it's probably I, I'd say even you know teenager I think would hope hmm. to be able to to access that. Yeah. Um, it may be a little bit over the head of some kids. Uh, it just depends on, you know, what kind of reading comprehension level they have. But I always try to make the stuff that I write as accessible as possible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, there's a phrase from uh, one professor who once said, I want to make it accessible to the bunnies and the giraffes. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so, I, I, you know, it's it's tough to do that. Yeah. And I hope that I'm able to make it accessible to to various folks. Uh, but I often, you know, encourage people to say, you know, pick up the book and just maybe, uh, read a chapter on a Sunday afternoon and, you know, just kind of make your way through it and, and think about the things that are, are in there and the things that Paul talks about. And it, it can be a great exercise. Yeah, for sure. Well, I have a copy of, uh, the Galatians commentary in my hand and it's, uh, it's 211 pages or 216 pages. And you mm-hmm. know what? It's a pretty small commentary, but it's heavy. In a good way, not literally, but figuratively. <laughs> and uh, I, so I like it for lay people. I also like it for pastors because uh, I think sometimes pastors focus so much on the trees, we forget the forest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's a good model of how to look at things from a bigger perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talk a lot about authorial intent, but mm-hmm. sometimes I think when we just stare at the, the bark, um, it's our intent and not actually the authorial intent as far as yeah. human author and divine author. So yeah. it's a good model. Yeah. I think it comes from the fruit of your former pastoral ministry, doesn't it? Yeah, I was a pastor for about 11 years, uh, you know, preaching morning and evening for the better part of, you know, more than a decade. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would typically do um, New Testament in the morning and then Old Testament in the evening. But um, but yeah, so I, I covered a lot of ground and I, I learned a ton and I hope that, uh, that the church where I pastored uh, benefited from from all of that. Uh, and I, you know, I, one of these days, God willing, I'll see some fruit of that, you know, uh, when I get to see things from the other side. But uh, but yeah, uh, that for sure. So the you've done Galatians and Romans in the Lectio Continua Expository Commentary series. Uh, mm-hmm. What in the world is Lectio Continua, and why should the marketing department be fired? <laughs> I heard somebody once say, "Never put Latin in your title." <laughs> and I think that that's probably sound advice. Uh, but I'm not a marketing guy, so you know we'll see. Okay, but yeah, it means uh, continual reading, and so you know during the. The Protestant Reformation, and to a certain extent, in, in you know other pockets in church history, say in the in the patristic period, mm-hmm. the first five hundred years of the church, um, you had preachers, whether it was Saint Augustine or a Calvin or a Luther, where they would just preach chapter by chapter, you know, book by book throughout the Bible, mm-hmm. and so you can pick up say the the sermons of Saint Augustine on the Psalms, and it's mm-hmm. he, he preached all the way through the Psalms. 
you can, you know, pick up uh, Calvin's sermons on Galatians where he would go, you know, section by section by section. And so uh, I'm not, I, I would never say that you can't just preach, you know, kind of various passages or topical uh, messages. That's always appropriate. You know, preach the Bible, of course, but uh, there's such great benefit to uh, sitting down and um, working through an entire book of the Bible, not only for preachers, but also for a congregation, because what you do is you 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 get a complete body of thought. Um, whereas if as a preacher, you're always picking topical messages, the, the, the potential pitfall is, is you start riding hobby horses or, you, you know, you, you start pursuing your own interests. I remember once I was preaching through Second Corinthians and um, I preached three weeks in a row on tithing. And people said, you know, are, are you, you know, is there a problem? And I'm like, no, but that's just what's here in the text. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, when you get to a certain part, you know, breaking it up, well, there's, you know, that's what Paul's talking about. So that's what we'll talk about. Uh, and it's a good way to ensure that you cover the tough passages of Scripture that maybe you might be disinclined to, mm. to, to look into. Absolutely. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, so I, I, I love that approach. And wherever I go, I try to do it. And you can do it in shorter and longer versions, you sure. know, pick sections of the Bible or or go through entire books. Yep. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's a great way to go. Yeah. Now, John, did anything change in this edition? This is the second edition of your Galatians commentary. If, did anything change? And if yeah. so, what did? No, just a few stylistic things. And then one of the things when uh, Reformation Heritage picked up the series, mm -hmm. Reformation Heritage either works with the King James or New King James. Mm. And so the it was originally done with the ESV, okay. uh, English Standard Version. And so just had to swap that out so that when they ran out of print, then they put out the second edition. They're like, okay, let's swap out versions. And uh, I think the New King James is you know it's a good translation uh you know it's like uh i think somebody once said asked a colleague of mine you know what's your favorite translation he says well whichever one you happen to be reading just <laughs> you know read the bible uh, -huh. uh they all have their strengths and weaknesses but um yeah so it's just basically mostly stylistic okay. every once in a small place i don't recall where i may have you know switched a phrase or something like that but they're they're pretty much substantively uh the same book so it's just an updated translation gotcha you have some better endorsers for this edition. Yes, I got a fine endorser. <laughs> I, 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 I went to this endorser with great trepidation, but I'm so grateful that this yeah. endorser said yeah. yes. <laughs> oh, well, let's get it. Let, let's move on to serious stuff. Uh, let's get into Galatians in particular. Um, and you point out in the introduction of the commentary that one of the major uh, points of focus is justification. And so what, what's, what's, what is justification? What does Galatians say about it? Uh, give us the, the super kind of basic definition since it's so important. Yeah. Justification is the term that appears in scripture, say, for example, in Galatians chapter three, uh, Romans chapter four, uh, Romans chapter five, among many others, Genesis chapter 15, verse six, where um, the Bible tells us that God will make a judicial declaration that he will sit in capacity as judge and declare us uh, either righteous or condemned. And so what that means is, is first of all, it's a legal declaration. Uh, so it's what you would call it's forensic. It's, it's a verbal declaration. Second of all, it's a judicial declaration which means that it's a judgment that God makes about our uh, about our state. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Are we in a state of righteousness or in a state of condemnation? Third, when we say righteousness, it means that we're in conformity to the law. Uh, you know, have we met the requirements of the law? Not simply merely being innocent of wrongdoing, uh, but rather have we positively fulfilled the requirements of the law? Mm. And then, or conversely, <clears throat> we violated the law and therefore we're guilty of breaking it and therefore we uh, we earn that condemn- condemnation or that condemned verdict. You know, so think of the criminals uh, or the accused criminal, I should say, the accused person standing in the courtroom and the judge says, innocent. Okay, that's a judicial declaration. Uh, our declarations are similar, but that God says you are righteous mm-hmm. and we're we're righteous in God's sight, not for what we do, but for what Christ has done on our behalf. And so it's his works, not ours. Uh, you know, so, you know, in the words of the famous that, that hymn, I can't remember it, not not my works, but thine uh, speak uh, mercy to my soul. Um and so it's it's Christ's work in my place that God credits to me. And the way that I receive that credited righteousness or, or obedience to the law mm-hmm. is by God's grace alone, which means it's completely undeserved. And in fact, we would say not only is it unmerited, but it's demerited mm-hmm. yeah. in spite of our sin. Yes. And and then it's so it's by God's grace alone through faith alone. In other words, we don't contribute to it with our good works. Uh, or our feelings or what have you. It's, it's, it, it's entirely through faith. And I was just teaching my students a little, a few minutes ago that we say by faith or through faith. In other words, our salvation doesn't rest on faith, mm-hmm. but it's the instrument mm-hmm. or the bridge by which we, uh, we, we get to Christ. And that's where our salvation rests upon Christ's shoulders, uh, entirely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's, that's what Paul sets forth uh, among other subjects, but chiefly, I think, in in the uh, the epistle to the Galatian churches. Outstanding. Yeah. I so appreciate the clarity and uh, even the depth of the definition. Listeners, you should, you should rewind and listen to that again and again and <laughs> again. Uh, he didn't say just as if I never sinned, right. um, because <laughs> it's far more significant than that. And so I appreciate the clarity on that. Related to this, John, would be uh, Galatians and and the significance Galatians places on it being sola fide, justification by grace alone, through faith alone and the finished work of Christ alone. Uh, We know that it's a biblical reality, but how important is it? What, What do we find in Galatians regarding the significance of that matter? Yeah, you know, the, the overall problem that was going on in Galatia is that there were some professed Christian teachers uh, who were telling the Gentiles uh, in the midst of the Galatian churches that, yes, you have to believe in Jesus. However, in addition to faith in Jesus, you also have to be circumcised. Now, on the one hand, this is understandable, you know, for more than a thousand plus years, 1,500, 2,000 years, the Jewish people saw and used circumcision as as the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Mm-hmm. So, okay, seeing the importance of that is understandable. But what they failed to see is that circumcision points to the finished work of Christ. And once Christ comes and himself is cut off in, in terms of bearing the covenant curse, mm-hmm. 
in his crucifixion, which Paul in Colossians 2, 11 and 12 likens unto a circumcision, where it's by the circumcision of Christ, he says, essentially that you've been, you've been saved, that there, it's no longer circumcision is, serves as that sign. And that the sign, uh, that, that, the, that, that the way we are saved has always been by faith in Christ. So circumcision points to Christ. Uh, not that it's something else that we have to do in order to make ourselves acceptable to Christ. Uh, you know, think of uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 11, where the Apostle Paul says that circumcision was the sign and seal of the righteousness that Adam, or sorry, that uh, Abraham had by faith. So it's sign and seal. It's not the means by which we obtain our salvation, mm-hmm. but rather uh, it is the sign and seal in the Old Testament that Abraham had righteousness that he received by faith. Mm. And so all of that is to say is that they were trying essentially at its most fundamental level, trying to mix faith with something that they do, faith and works, and, you know, some sort of alchemy of combining the grace of God with our, you know, uh, lead works, if you will, to try to produce the gold of salvation. Mm. Uh, and Paul was beside himself. He was so exercised about this. When he says in Galatians 1, 8, 9, if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel to you other than that which we have preached to you, let him be anathema. I say again. And then he goes on and repeats it again. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he he was basically saying, how can you start in faith and finish in works? Mm. Uh, That's that's not the way it works. It's always by faith from the first moment to the last moment. So it wasn't the Apostle Paul saying, well, we, we can just agree to disagree here. Um, this is an in-house, it wasn't an in-house debate. That's right. No, it wasn't an in-house debate. Uh, and so in that sense, that's why I said professed Christian teachers, because they were teaching false doctrine and God willing, they repented. Uh, but you know, Paul makes it very clear in the most, in the starkest of terms to say, this is another gospel. Not that there is another way to be saved, but he's saying, this is not the gospel we preach to you. This is falsehood. Got it. So if I can put it in the bluntest of terms, they were preaching anti-gospel hmm. um, and Paul was preaching gospel. So faith alone is vital. It's essential. It's uh, not something that's up for debate within authentic Christianity, right? That, uh, well, at its best, yes. That's right. <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, it's not just at Galatia that we have to, uh, you know, we have to teach this, but we have to teach this in every age. Every age has to own the gospel and defend it huh. because, you know, our, our our sinful hearts collectively as a people are always trying to mix our good works in there somehow. Right. And so we always have to keep the Galatian heresy uh, at bay. And so the Galatian heresy is different from the uh, opponents of Paul that he addresses elsewhere where they had wrong motives, but they were preaching the right gospel. Mm-hmm. Paul, right. Paul essentially says, I don't, I don't care. They might have, you know, you know, maybe they're against me, but it's okay. At least they're preaching Christ. Right. Exactly. This, this is, this is apples to oranges. This is a different matter altogether. Yeah. Huh. I found it interesting uh, in Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism, that he basically says, I'm just paraphrasing, uh, the Galatian false teachers, they're not denying that Jesus lived. They're not denying that he died. They're not denying that he was raised from the dead. The issue is, is it received by faith alone or is it by faith plus works? Mm-hmm. I thought, I thought yeah. that was striking. Yeah, I think Machen's right on the money there. You know, it's like, I think it was, um, I think it was Charles Hodge who said this, that Historically, the church has not 
really had to worry too much about Pelagianism, the idea that I don't need the grace of God to be saved. Mm -hmm. I can save myself. It's always, he says, the ghost of semi-Pelagius that we have to worry about, that thinking it's some sort of combination of my works and God's grace that's going to save me. That makes sense. That, that, makes is, sense. that is the greater threat. And I think that's the, that's, the, that's the pulse beat, so to speak, that Machen puts his finger upon and says, this is the problem. Huh. I think it was R.C. Sproul who said uh, Pelagian, Pelagius had a cousin named, named Semi. <laughs> That's right. So, <laughs> it's a great way of putting it. <laughs> All right. So oftentimes when we're talking to people, for example, from the Roman Catholic uh, tradition, uh, they love to go to Galatians 5, 6, and uh, they love to go to Galatians 5, 6, and they see it as a proof text against sola fide. Um, could you talk about Galatians 5, 6 and, and why maybe that's not the best proof text to deny justification sola fide? Yeah, I think that one of the things that and this uh, this played out during the Reformation, that because the Reformers put forth the idea that we're justified sola fide, that is by faith alone, mm -hmm. that the Roman Catholics at, the, at that period accused the Reformers of saying that it's just a bare assent, you know, it's just kind of checking mm -hmm. a box. And the Reformers put it this way, they said, while we are justified by faith alone, it is never a faith that is alone. So in other words, a justifying faith always produces the good good works, the fruit of good works. But notice I use that word, the good works are the fruits and evidences of a genuine saving faith. They are not what constitutes that saving faith. It's the fruit and evidences of it. So, you, you know, or to put it in Jesus's terms, you can always tell the nature of a tree by its fruit. Hmm. Uh, and so when Paul writes in Galatians 5, 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. It's the idea that, yes, faith does produce love. Faith works yeah. by love. But that is in our sanctification. That is, that's a, that's, that's a fruit of our progressive con confirmation unto the image of Christ. That love does not play a role in our justification, that declaration of righteousness. There's, there's a passage in the Westminster Confession, uh, chapter 14, and I think it's paragraph three, where it says the principal acts of saving faith are resting, receiving, and accepting. Those are all passive things. We rest in Christ. We receive Christ. We accept Christ. Uh, we, we don't, uh, we don't love Christ for our sanctif or for our justification. But when we, he justifies us as we trust in Christ, that, that, that faith that we have in Christ will produce the, the, the fruit of love, okay. uh, and good works. And mm -hmm. so it's, uh, it's a question of, I would say, of putting the, uh, horse before the cart yep. or the cart before the mm -hmm. horse, I guess, as it were. I sometimes get my analogies mixed up. It's the cart before the horse. <laughs> yep. And it makes a lot of sense in light of Romans four, where God justifies the ungodly. So yeah, if we were, if I we tell were my loving, students there yeah. in Romans four five, when Paul says that he justifies the ungodly, those are some of the most stunning words mm. in all of the Bible mm. and should leave us slack jawed that it's not a justification of the godly, but a justification of the ungodly that he declares us righteous. How is this possible? Because we have the righteousness of the perfect son, Jesus Christ. Yes. That's why. And if we were loving, uh, we wouldn't be labeled as un ungodly. We'd be That's right. as godly.
Yeah. So as a related matter to what we're talking about here and sola fide in Galatians, you recently wrote an article for the RTS Journal, Reformed Theological Seminary Journal, where you contrast the traditional Reformed understanding of faith with the one given in John Piper's recent book, What is Saving Faith? So what is the error? How serious is it? And uh, what's the corrective? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, the first thing I'd want to say is that, you know, I have the greatest respect for Dr. Piper. He's done so much and he's he's written so many books that I, I'm sure have been helpful to so many. Uh, but on this particular issue uh, that and, and I would say some related issues to it, uh, I'm unpersuaded by the way that he puts things and that what he the way he puts things is he says that we have to have uh, we have to esteem Jesus as 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 our great treasure we have to have a profound feeling of affection for him uh and and on the one hand i want to say of course mm-hmm. yes we should esteem christ as the greatest treasure of all and we should have uh you know profound uh feelings of affection for him mm-hmm. uh but where i disagree and where i believe that the tradition takes a different uh approach is that Dr. Piper says that this, you know, treasuring Christ or this feeling of affection is at the heart of faith, not the fruit of faith. Okay. Uh, and he even appeals to somebody like Francis Turretin. Uh, Francis Turretin taught theology at the, uh, at the University of Geneva, the Academy of Geneva, mm-hmm. three generations after Calvin. And he wrote his Institutes of Elenctic Theology, which I think are some of the most uh, incredibly uh, carefully written textbooks and, you know, ever written on theology. I, I love them. But one of the things he says is he says that the, the, the direct actions of faith, um, are things like resting and accepting and receiving, whereas the reflexive actions of faith are things like love. And so, you know, it's close to say, yes, does, does, do, do we love Christ? Yes. But it's the fruit of faith. And this is where Dr. Piper disagrees, I think, even with Turretin when he says that he doesn't want to distinguish what faith is versus what faith does. Okay. And we would say what faith is, is that it trusts in Christ. What faith does is that it loves Christ. And what justifies us is what faith is, not what faith does. And so the problem is, is that I think it's twofold is that while Dr. Piper affirms justification sola fide, mm-hmm. this formulation as to how he has a- a- arranged faith doesn't fit with that. Okay, And that's why in my panel discussion with him, uh, myself and one of my other colleagues, Dr. Guy Waters, uh-huh. we pointed out to say these two things don't fit together. So we're grateful for his affirmation of sola fide, but to, to, to explain faith in that way, it, it's it's creating oil and water here that, that yeah. they don't mix together. Okay. So it sounds then, a lot like we're putting love as part of what faith is. And yeah. love is obedience to God's law. So now we have faith and obedience to God's law mm-hmm. for justification, which isn't very Protestant. Am I right? Am I right? right. Yeah. It, it sounds, it sounds more like, um, it sounds more like uh, Rome. Hmm. It sounds similar to the Judaizers as far as I can tell. And uh, even Rome doesn't, I don't think Rome even goes that far, because what Rome says is uh, faith is formed by love. Mm -hmm. 
Hmm. Not that it's at its heart or at its core or that it's, it's at, that's what its substance is. And so, um, you know, so the, the other problem that it creates is that it creates an undefined, I think, emotional bar that you have to meet to say, well, if in order for my faith to be genuine, I have to truly treasure Christ as the greatest treasure of all and have these great feelings for him. Where does that bar lie? Hmm. How how much treasuring is enough treasuring? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hmm. And he said, well, you know, I remember when I asked him about this, he says, well, it just takes the grain of a mustard seed. And I didn't get the chance to ask him. And it only hit me afterwards. Uh, I always, I'm a parking lot guy. I think of it in the parking lot rather than in the moment. Um, But I I would want to say, what if you only have half a grain of mustard seed worth of feeling that is that enough yeah. and you're always asking is is it enough and what it does is it moves the ground of our justification away from objectively resting in christ yeah. to moving it to our subjective shifting sands of how we feel at any one particular moment and i think it robs us of our assurance interesting mm-hmm. yeah huh. um so i'm i'm unpersuaded and my hope is is that Dr. Piper and the exchange will see and will clean 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 up those lines, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and that his affirmation of sola fide will get unclouded by uh, the way that he's or- organized and, and and explained the nature of saving faith. Yeah, we will put a link to the article that you wrote um, in our show notes so that our readers can have access to that. Yeah. So we need to get things wrapped up here. So uh, the final question should be a question about the end. Uh, And (laughs) so, uh, in your commentary on Galatians, you talk about eschatology. You say, yes, uh, Galatians has a lot to say about justification and sanctification, but it also has a lot to say about eschatology. And Mm -hmm. I'm guessing, John, that some of our listeners might think Galatians, eschatology, it doesn't sound that much like Revelation 20. It doesn't sound that much like uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. How how is it that you say that Galatians is about eschatology? Yeah, I think when we we look at... um, the nature of of eschatology, we are always thinking about it in terms of the last few days prior to the return of Christ. But if we realize that, you know, with Hebrews 1, 1 and following that, that God in times past spoke in various ways through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Mm. That means with, with the arrival of the son is the arrival of the last days, yeah. i.e. the end, eschatology. Uh, okay. Um, and so... What that means is that one of the most definitive moments in the inaugural unfolding of the last days is not only the incarnation and ministry of Christ, but then it's Christ's outpouring of the Spirit. Uh, it's his outpouring of the Spirit so that, remember what Joel says, and the, the uh, Apostle Peter quotes Joel 2.28 through mm-hmm, 32 mm-hmm. when he says, you know, they're there at Pentecost and they say, hey, these men aren't drunk as you suppose. It's it's only the ninth hour of the day. He says, but rather this is what was spoken of in, by the prophet Joel, who said, in these last days, I will pour out my spirit. Mm-hmm. So that means that when Christ pours out the spirit of Pentecost, it's it's a last days thing that he's doing. And so I try to remind people, you know, in the book and, and point these things out throughout the Bible, is that means that the fruit of the spirit and the fruit that we exhibit uh, in our daily Christian life are signs that the last days are upon us. 
when mm-hmm. we exercise love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So it may not seem all that significant, but when you respond to your tantruming three-year-old <laughs> in patience, that's a manifestation of the last day's presence of the Spirit, and it's pointing forward to the patience and the peace that will mark our dwelling in eternity. Hmm. Super. Uh, it, it's just manifest now. One of my favorite quotes, and I think I quoted in the book, and if I don't, I should have, but it came from the Lord of the Rings movie. I think it was the Fellowship of the Rings where Gandalf says this. He says, some believe it's only great power that can hold evil in check, but that is not what I have found. I have found that it is the small everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay, small acts of kindness and love. That, I think, is a really great description <laughs> Uh, as to the nature, as to how we advance the kingdom of God in these last days through small acts of kindness and through love as we love one another as God has loved us in Christ. Mm -hmm. So listeners, if you uh, are not convinced, I'm convinced from what Dr. Fesco says, but reread Galatians and look at all of the emphasis on the Holy Spirit, because there really is a lot of emphasis. And you'll even also notice, like in chapter 6, verse 15, he talks about new creation. And so um, it's actually there. You just have to look for it. And I'm thankful for uh, John Fesco's Galatians commentary because he helps us to see the Isaiah 65, 66, Joel 2 realities are our realities we're experiencing now. Uh, we are already part of the new creation, already not yet, sort of like 2 Corinthians 5.17. And so it's really encouraging to learn about eschatology in the here and now. Yeah. John, this has been great. So yeah. thankful that you've been on with us. Thanks, um, guys, for so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure, and God willing, I look forward to the next one. Awesome. Yeah. If you'd like a great discount on John's new Galatians commentary, we encourage you to head over to Reformation Heritage Books. They've got a great sale going on it right now here in September of 2023. Uh, heritagebooks.org. We'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, it's on sale for $12 off. It's $18. We'd encourage you to go grab yourself a copy. Originally $30. Yeah. Man, you do, you're pretty good. Good at math. Well, it was in my notes. I don't, yeah, I don't trust myself to be able to handle that. <laughs> and if you would like to follow John Fesco on social media, he has a website with a lot of great resources, jvfesco.com, jvfesco.com. He's on Twitter, JV, at jvfesco. Uh, you can go to RTS's website, rts.edu. He's also on Facebook, I hear, but I'm not. <laughs> That's right. Well, thanks for listening to the Pactum. We're thankful for all of you being a part of the Pactum verse. You can find us online, Instagram, Twitter. You can email us, connect at thepactum.org. We'll see you next time on the Pactum. Mm-hmm.